Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. Now, this is the first episode of season five of Writing the Coast, and I'm so excited to share conversations with the 2023 finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, I would like to take a moment to invite you to visit our website, which you can find in the show notes. In addition to handing out eight book prizes every year, the BC and Yukon Book Prizes also does a monthly virtual event series, in-person events, and we collaborate with literary organizations around the province and territory. So there are lots of exciting ways to celebrate the amazing books being created in BC and Yukon. Okay, on to our very exciting first episode. My guest is Danny Ramadan. This is Danny's second appearance on the podcast, and his beautiful novel, The Foghorn Echoes, is a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. In this episode, Danny and I talk about the Backstreet Boys. Yes, you heard that correctly. And we do manage to tie it back to writing. We also talk about how he approaches structure, and we have a very candid and funny conversation about writing sex scenes. Danny starts our episode with a reading from the Foghorn Echoes. So to set you up in the scene, the Foghorn Echoes is written about two queer men who are navigating a post-traumatic stress disorder after an incident they shared in Damascus. And one lives in Vancouver and the other lives in Damascus still. And this reading is from the end of the book, actually. It's from the chapter before last, which is... Uh, blasphemy for an author to read publicly. Uh, so, A, I think it's a story that is self-contained, so it's not going to spoil anything for you. And B, I'm not going to tell you who's the narrator, which uh, which really helps in keeping stories as they are. Uh, in this uh, scene, the narrator is trying to leave Syria legally and cross the borders to Turkey. The taxi driver asked if I was escaping military service, and I told him that I was an only child. You're a lucky one, he said. You're the only one who won't be called up in these times. You never know, I said from the back seat. You never know, he repeated. There were three of us in the car, myself, the driver, and his friend in the front. They told me that the trip wouldn't be long, and especially since I was legally leaving Syria with my passport, there wouldn't be any trouble at the border. We passed the windy streets of Aleppo quickly, leaving behind the heavy shilling noise in eastern neighborhoods. With every explosion, I jumped in the back seat, while both the driver and his friend nonchalantly continued their conversation. Hours later, we neared the Turkish border. We parked in the long line of cars leaving the country, some empty except for a passenger or two. Others packed the roof with luggage. The line stretched for miles ahead of us, and the driver and his friend left the car to smoke. 
I heard a ringtone coming from inside the car. I lowered the window and told the driver that his phone was ringing. He flashed me the phone in his hand, and before I could say more, the ringing stopped. By the time we reached the border check, the sun had already risen and dryness filled my mouth. The driver's friend had fallen asleep while the driver smoked yet another cigarette, puffing the smoke through his open window. He elbowed his friend awake and they handed their documents to the officer to leave through. Where is Malik? The driver asked. I thought this was his shift. Malik is sick today, the officer responded. He looked at me through the window and I handed him my passport. He looked at it, then at my face. He lifted the passport up, examined it in the direct sunlight. Then he bent it. I thought he might write it next to ensure it's, its authenticity, but he finally handed it back. The driver was about to start the engine again, but the officer asked him to open the trunk. Malik never asked us to open the trunk. His voice was steady. I'm not Malik. Now open the trunk. The driver exchanged a look with his friend before he pulled the lever by his side and the trunk opened. What's going on? I whispered to them. The driver hushed me while following the, the officer with his eyes. We are fucked. His friend nodded in agreement. It finally dawned on me that someone was hiding in the trunk. That is where the ringtone had come from. The officer pulled the trunk open. Seconds passed. My fingers trembled and I felt the tightness in my stomach. You brought this on me, I said to the driver and his friend, and they shushed me in unison. A few more seconds passed, then the officer closed the trunk, tapped on it twice, and ordered us to drive away. The driver, not believing his ears, hit the road fast, leaving a cloud of dust behind. I wanted to look back, but he shouted at me to keep my face forward. We drove for 10 minutes in silence until the border disappeared appeared behind us and then he parked on the side of the road and the three of us jumped out of the car together we opened trunk inside was the smuggled man he was drunk the driver explained to me that the man was due to join military service to fight on the front lines not wanting to be part of the war and knowing well that his name was on the no travel list he had no option but to be smuggled the man broke into fits of laughter and stank of whiskey he told us that using the flashlight on his phone he had found a box containing the four bottles of whiskey stashed back there uh, nothing else to do but drink the man shielded his eyes from the harsh sun he had guzzled the alcohol on an empty stomach and had passed out until the officer opened the trunk. We both froze, he told us. Without thinking, he had handed a full whiskey bottle to the officer. The officer looked at the bottle and back at the man and snatched the bottle and closed the trunk. Thank you, Danny. Sure. It's the third. I think it's like the third or fourth time I've heard you read that, but I I love that scene <laughs> so much. It never. I know. I just love how you read it too. So. Oh, it's thank so you, cool. thank you. I did some theater back in um, 
back in university and back in uh, high school. So I lean a lot on my theater training in my readings. I try to make it a bit theatrical. I guess part of it is that you're listening to this, so you, you don't see me perform it, but I do a lot of hand gestures and, and uh, I do voices, which I don't know if will cross in podcast form. <laughs> I know I, I should have you should have said and now I'm rolling down the window. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Uh, and now I'm pretending to be drunk. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. First question. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Who am I? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who are you today? Who am I today? Uh, today I'm warm. It is uh, very hot here in Vancouver. Today I'm my dog's pillow. He uh, needed some uh, some affirmation and attention this morning. Um, I am. It's really interesting. So I am to to put it officially. I am Danny Ramadan. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm a Syrian Canadian author. I wrote the Clothesline Swing and the Pogon Echoes and um, a bunch of children's books. Selma the Syrian Chef, which was nominated last year for the Vancouver Book Awards, and uh, now I have a series of children books coming out. Salma uh, Makes a Home and Salma Writes a Book are coming out this year. But it's really interesting because like when you think about yourself, you ask me, who are you? And I'm like, I, I, I don't think of myself as I'm sitting on the couch talking to you. I don't think of myself as, as the Syrian Canadian author. I am whatever I am today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we were messaging back and forth and uh, ever since... I saw your Backstreet Boys photos (laughs) in Iceland. All I've wanted to do is talk to you about the Backstreet Boys, which, like, people listening to this podcast are going to be like, what on earth? I am here to listen to Danny, the Syrian author, talk about Foghorn Echoes, not Backstreet Boys. But I think people would be surprised, first of all, to know there there is a bit of a connection between Mm -hmm. all of this. Um, So, Danny, you saw the Backstreet Boys how was it? <laughs> uh, gosh, gosh. So let me explain first how it came that came about that I am uh, hanging out with the Backstreet Boys in Iceland, out of all places. Uh, so I was invited by the First Lady of Iceland, Eliza Reid, uh, who is a fantastic author herself as well, so you should check out her books. Um, and um, I was invited to go to Iceland to teach at the Iceland's Writers' Retreat, which is beautiful in its own way it's very i'm i'm i was very honored i was very thankful to be included of course and i got to meet some of my um absolute favorite uh writers uh carol manning was there um uh, claire masoud was there uh nita anita prose was there all of those fantastic authors right um and i got to hang out with all of them and then we did a reading on literally on our first night there and after the reading, somebody raised their hand and they asked me, so how come you speak English so well? Which I find to be a racist question. It's mm-hmm. very like microaggressive because the assumption here is basically what this question is saying, all of you brown people don't speak English and you 
a unique person you are speak fantastic English. So how come did you attend, uh, accomplish this? And in reality, I accomplished this by actually studying the language, which is how people do it. You know, how like we all learn very... English. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and to be clear, there are some people where English is their first language and they don't speak English too well either. So exactly. I mean, let's be honest. It doesn't exactly. really have anything to do with the color of our skin. Exactly, exactly. So but usually because I'm not as confrontational as I used to be like back in my 20s, I have this like canned replies that I have for those uh, my progressive uh, questions. And the canned reply for that is, well, when I was 14, I fell in love with the Backstreet Boys and I wanted to know what the hell these uh, boys are singing um, about. So I learned the language, which A, unrealistic. And be kind of true, because I did, I, I had a humongous crush on the Backstreet Boys, Ryan specifically, AJ second to that. So I was, I was obsessed with them, as every gay 12, 13-year-old was back in the 90s, right? And who was listening? Eliza Reed, the first lady of Iceland. And apparently, the Backstreet Boys were actually performing a concert in Reykjavik two days later. And I get a phone call from Eliza at eight o'clock in the morning while jet lagged, being like, hey, uh, are you awake? And I'm like, I am now. And she's like, well, listen, um, the Backstreet Boys are performing tonight. And I was thinking I'll take you with me to go and hang out with them if you like. And I'm like, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, yes. Um, yeah. And I spent the whole day. I, I was teaching that day. And I spent the whole day preparing my outfit in my head. What am I wearing for the Backstreet Boys? And uh, preparing flirtatious uh, gestures towards Brian of the Backstreet Boys, which I accomplished none of, of course. <laughs> and then Eliza helped me locate a copy of my book in Iceland. <laughs> and I gifted them a copy of my book. And I went and I hanged out at the Backstreet Boys, who are absolute sweethearts, to be honest. Like, they treated me so nicely. They asked me questions. They were uh, very intrigued, very personable. I was, I was quite thankful. It was a great experience. I had a fantastic time, and uh, and yeah, I told them that um, I learned the language because I fell in love with them at the age of fourteen. <laughs> I mean, it, it's probably actually a very common story when you think of like so here. I think you and I are about the same age. I fell in love yeah. with the Backstreet Boys about the same age. Right. Uh, I My favorite was AJ, because, of course, he was the bad boy of the boy band, which I always laugh at, because it's like, how bad can you be when you're in a boy, in a boy band? band? But, you know, <laughs> we that's, that's a conversation for another time. Um, uh. But, I th you know, like, at the time that the Backstreet Boys were so popular, I mean, they were a world wide phenomenon they were traveling mm -hmm. the whole world uh you know doing shows and so i imagine there was lots of young people in love with the backstreet boys just like me and you mm -hmm. singing the, the words not knowing what they meant and then eventually like kind learning of, like, the language learning the yeah. language yeah yeah and like i would i would say that a big part of why i have a less of an arab accent is because i sang all of those songs to myself as I'm walking around the streets of Damascus. So yes, like technically speaking, if we're going to be like, yes, I studied the language. I went to university to study the language. I have a I have a bachelor in English literature. So, <laughs> so I studied the language, right? But 
a big part of it, a big part of why I fell in love with it is because globalization meant the Backstreet Boys were everywhere, including secluded Damascus, Syria. Full confession, I've seen the Backstreet Boys twice in concert. Oh, that's nice. That's <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. but I was like oh. much younger. Yeah. The other thing that I want to say always that I always say is that AJ used to be the bad boy and now he is the most charitable, most wholesome one of all the five of them. And he's doing like drag shows. He has puppy love, which is his drag persona. It's it's actually quite cool to see that like evolution of the bad boy of the 90s becoming such a gay icon in a way. So, yeah. <laughs> so good for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's true. All right. I guess now we will actually move on to talk about <laughs> <laughs> Echoes. Um, we'll, we'll save our lip sync sing-along for another time. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm already planning the playlist in my head. And expect <laughs> me to send you more songs by Instagram. Um, uh, yes, yes. So the Foghorn Echoes. I know you've talked about the title a ton. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted maybe if you could talk a little bit about the title in terms of the structure, because I know the two are tied together. Um, And I'd be curious to know like how that happened. Did the title come first and then the structure followed or was it the other way around? I would say that the two came around the same time. I would say the title came as I was creating the structure. So what happened is that I had a very, very skeletal kind of scene which was the seed of the book, which um, funny enough ended up in like the third third of the book. And then I wanted to write the story of two queer men who are navigating the same trauma, but under extremely different circumstances. And the story lent itself quite a lot to having one of them um, being a refugee in Canada, while the other is an internally displaced person in Syria. And I was faced with this challenge of how do I create a connection between two characters who are A, refusing to talk to each other, and B, they're not in the same geographical location. They're literally on the opposite end of the world. And it's funny because they don't even share the same sleeping schedule. They actually sleep opposite each other, right? Um, so the only way that that could happen was by creating a structure where they echo each other. And I explained that like I actually have it drawn on a whiteboard where I had the insight incident as a central circle in the middle of the board. And then the insight incident explodes like a bomb, sending the two characters in opposite directions, one towards Vancouver and the other to stay in Damascus. And then I created a positive event that happens to the first one, which echoed back to a positive event that happens to the second one. And then I move the second one a bit, and then something happens to the second one that will echo back to the uh, first one. So they are not sharing, um, they do not share a storyline, but they share some sort of a trajectory. And the way that that came about just felt like an echo they felt like an echo of one another um the other thing that they felt like they felt like a circle because one of them starts with uh him refusing to acknowledge the trauma that he went through um and the whole um part of his story is all about him 
reaching a point where he acknowledges that he has trauma, while the other starts from a place where he acknowledges that he has trauma and his whole story is about his journey of healing from that trauma. So in a way, it's like two half circles that would fit together. So yeah, all of that brought the idea of echoes. And I'm, I'm a big fan of um, using titles to, you, to, to, to describe the structure of a book. So for the clothesline swing, for example, the book is nonlinear in its fashion. So it swings back and forth across the timeline. And for uh, the next novel I'm working on, I'm thinking of tides of 16 characters who would take stories from one another the same way that waves would slowly, one after the other, take over land in a tide. I was super interested in the way you physically uh, mapped out your book. And like, is that is that a real thing for you? Like, are you a very visual person when it comes to understanding how your book is going to come together? Mm. So I'm working on a structure for the next novel as we speak. So I finished writing the, uh, the, the memoir and it is just going through editing at the moment. And I'm working on the structure for the next novel as we speak. And a big part of how I know that I am on the right track is that I think quite pragmatically about the book that I'm writing. I'm easily distracted by so many things. So if I'm just going to sit down and write chapter one and then typey type type until I finish the book, uh, the book will never be accomplished. But if I sat down for like a month and I created the whole structure, like a treasure map uh, of how the book would be accomplished, then I know that I can follow that structure for the next year or two until the book is now in its first draft, right? Um, so in a way, this structure, this visual representation of the storytelling helps me stay on track, but also it's quite inspiring, right? Like the idea that I created that echo had allowed me to create not just one motif in the book, but, but many. So for example, the very first scene that we see Hossam in, uh, he is surrounded by hundreds of people. Uh, while the very first scene that we see Wasim in, he's all alone. The last scene that we see Hussam in, he's all alone. While the last scene that we see Wasim in, he's surrounded by hundreds of people. So all of those little like, mm, it's like the engine of a car. So the structure allows me to, as the engineer of this book, to come up with, with an engine for the car. And you're the driver. You don't need to see how the engine functions. You don't need to know how gas is turned into power that will move the wheel in a certain direction. Um, you just get in the car and drive under a sunny day and, and enjoy the music, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that's the the real beautiful thing that you managed to do a structure with this, with Foghorn Echoes and with the clothesline swing is, and it's, you know, when masters of structure do this, it's like the structure exists and then someone explains it to you. Like the first time I heard you say, oh, it's an echo, I was like, Poof, like my whole head exploded because it was like, of course it is. But it just exists there in a way that like it makes it holds it all together, but you don't see it's there. Like that's I mm -hmm. think and that's the beautiful thing about a really good structure is it's like it exists and it moves, like you said, like the engine of a car, it moves it forward. But you mm -hmm. don't see it doing its work. And that's like, exactly. I think, I mean, that's what I would, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, 
It was, I had a similar reaction when uh, Michael Christie talked about the structure of Greenwood and he said it was the rings of a tree. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, of course it is, but like, it just exists without you even having to think about it. And I would say, honestly, thank you for, for saying that. This is really cool. And I would say, honestly, that we make it sound like it is so massively difficult, but it's not. Just as you're approaching a, a work of art that you're about to create, just think of a, of a physical representation of that art. So for me, it was the egg pose. For the, the memoir, it's uh, crooked teeth and how they are shaped inside of a mouth. And I look at that one aspect and I, I just expand it across the book. So it's really just about finding the right fit of a physical representation that would allow the book to move forward. It's it's It feels easy to me, is all I'm saying. Well, you make it look easy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle as someone who's like now taking apart the structure of their book. It's like, oh boy. Um, but, you know. It comes sometimes. It's it's fun too. It's fun too, right? Like, for example, uh, the memoir, which comes out next year, Crooked Teeth. The reason why I chose Crooked Teeth as a motif for that book is because teeth grow to accomplish a goal. A tooth that is crooked does not think of itself as crooked. It just wants to participate in the process of fighting, right? Um, but then because of all the, the other teeth around it, it comes across as crooked. Same goes for queer people growing up in hostile environments or in, in mainstream societies. We are surrounded by all of those teeth that are perfectly fitting together, except for you as one crooked tooth coming out um, in, in, in an opposite direction. And suddenly you are the problem, not everything about you, right? Not everything around you. Yeah. It's speaking to so much stuff that I've been writing lately about normal, what's normal and how, you know, and folks who are part of um, marginalized communities or, you know, folks who are disabled, fat bodies. It's like, you know, what does it mean to exist within a, a world that wants us to be one very specific way? And Yeah, and I, I can say so much. About, like, OK, so I'm left handed, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, the muscles on my right side are much stronger than the muscles on my left side because this world is designed for right-handed people. So all the doors are pushed with your right hand. Every Everything that you, um, everything is designed so it's on your right. Um, so I use my right hand way more than I use my left hand, despite the fact that I am left-handed. And that's that actually can be translated to everything around us regarding sexual orientations, gender identities, um, regarding disabilities and, and fat phobia, all of those things are because this world has never been designed with us in mind. It was designed for one specific character that honestly in our day and age is extremely unattainable. Like mm-hmm. you, you, it's, it's really hard to be the character this world is designed for right now. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, it really, it's like a Barbie doll and or a Ken doll. Yeah. And yeah. we all know, like, you, if a Barbie doll actually existed, it would just fall flat on its face. So mm-hmm. why, why are we all trying to be like a Barbie doll? 
Oh, <laughs> uh, God. I mean, Margot Robbie is, uh, Margot Robbie is going to be an amazing Barbie doll. This, uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to that Canby movie. It looks like the most Canby thing that ever existed. So if we're going to accept that Barbies exist, it is what exists in that pink world inside of a movie. It's not something that can exist in our real life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the other thing I love so much about Foghorn Echoes, and this kind of ties into uh, our, our, our detour to Barbie and <laughs> other things, maybe. Um, I'll try my best to tie it in. But yeah. the thing I, I, I think you and I actually even talked about this when we talked about Foghorn Echoes in uh, White Horse, but I love the exploration of love in all of its complexities in this book mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. i'm really into like love stories and i'm using air quotes that aren't you know and everyone lived happily ever after because i think mm -hmm. you your exploration of it is true to how so many people do uh experience love love with family love with place love with friends um mm -hmm. and uh yeah i would just love to hear how you approach that and the challenges of writing about love in a world that you know does project love in very specific ways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i have a confession to make <laughs> a lot of people think that i write love stories just because the two main characters that i have in my books so far are two people who are who were at some point in their life in love with each other and and I don't intend on writing love stories. I don't go out of my way to be like, and now I'm a romance, romantic writer. I do not. I just think that love has a power and that when it exists on the page, it, it shines, it comes across. It's, uh, it's an emotion that we hold a lot of value to as humanity, as humans. It's an interpersonal connection that is unlike any other interpersonal connection that we have. You are, in a way, you are bond to love your family, to love your parents, even though they drive you insane. You are born to love your siblings, even though you cannot seem to agree on anything. But to choose somebody else that you're not in any way required to love, yet choose to love them so endlessly, is it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful desire, right? And for me, to be honest, when I write about love, I try my very best not to look at it from the perspective of how movies and TV shows and, and, and books try to present it, which is the will they, won't they, we are on a break or were they not on a break and all of that 90s bullshit, right? I, I try to actually look at it from a human perspective. So there's a lot of focus on self-love, for example, in The Foghorn Echoes. The two characters are, yes, they are tangled within the stories of them loving each other but in reality what what they deserve and what they're seeking unconsciously seeking is self-love mm -hmm. and um and that goes for the like the other loving relationships in the book so um even when ron let's delete that uh and that goes for the other um uh, characters in the uh, in the book. So even when Ray is in a relationship with uh, Hossam, um, Ray is not really in a relationship with Hossam. He is in a relationship with the with the expectation of Hossam, with how he wants to project himself as an older white gentleman to the world. He is 
he's in a, in a loving relationship with the image he's trying to project to the world around him. It's not Hussein that is part of that equation, right? So yeah, when I try to look at love, I try to, I try to complicate it because have you seen love in real life? It is extremely fucking complicated. It's <laughs> it's insane. And I, I love that about it. And I also hate that about it. And it's it's it drives us and it 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 pushes back and sometimes it holds us in our place and we can't even move. And I, I would I would love to write about all of those things. Yeah. I wasn't trying to say you're a romance writer. Like, let's be. No, clear. I know you're not. No, no, no. You're, I know. I know you're not. However, I mean, I would love is... for you to write like a really steamy romance. Just <laughs> putting it out there, but uh, I'm not. I I just think it's one of the, and like you said, like love. I think love in, exists in play in books that you don't always expect it because yeah. it is. It does motivate so much of how we are as people, how we interact with each other, what we want from the world. Um, there's an idea that like to be successful and to be an adult, you must be in a, in a loving relationship. Well, that's not how all people necessarily even feel, uh, but mm -hmm. there is that pressure. So, you know, I just think mm -hmm. it's, it's probably, again, I, I write about this stuff a lot. So it's things I think about and identify in other people's, uh, writing, but yeah, I just think it's interesting the, the different ways that love exists in this book just because mm -hmm. of the fact that it is like this thing that whether we see it or not exists all around us and we mm -hmm. are constantly bumping up against it. To, to add to that, which is really funny. So yesterday I was in therapy and my therapist says something really interesting that I loved, um, which is sometimes we assess ourselves vertically. There is a perfect situation that we are trying to accomplish and all we focus on is how much of a percentage we are reaching to that vertical goal. So all we can see is what is missing from that vertical goal, that perfect goal. And what my therapist was trying to help me accomplish is to think about it horizontally. What there is today I am here and tomorrow I am a bit better and the day after I'm a bit better. And that allows for a focus on what is happening better and how how we're expanding as humans right so i think i think that love should be measured in the same way we always have this perfect image of what a relationship is and then we are trying to accomplish it vertically and that image is in most cases unattainable just because it's one of my favorite words it is unattainable in most cases right but if, if a relationship then functions as a betterment on day to day that relationship becomes successful and i i think that is how i write relationships in my books that is how i write love in my books it's about bettering oneself and bettering the relationship itself and moving into this infinite goal of betterment therapy with danny <laughs> that is a podcast i want i want to listen to <laughs> shit my therapist say yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. um oh boy i wrote all these like points and we're like we're like all around them but not really uh it's because we're friends we, we we just we're just chatting right like this is this is our regular conversation we drink wine and talk like this you know i know and you know <laughs> what i actually really wanted to put in here and it's something you and i've talked about before yeah but i wanted to ask you about writing sex scenes 
Ooh. Because I think, I, you know, I, it's something that people really struggle with. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because there's an essay in, I don't know if you've read Melissa Fabos's book, Body Work, but she has an essay all about writing sex scenes. And basically what she is, says in it is like, it's just writing a scene. Like, yes, sex is what happens in the scene, but if you approach it like you write any other scene, it mm -hmm. shouldn't actually be that hard. But for whatever mm -hmm. reason, and it's probably because we're all like prudish, you know, <laughs> white people from a Christian background or something, like who knows? <laughs> but like, it seems like a lot of people just really struggle with writing good sex scenes. Okay, so... And, the, and you know we will talk about this like a million times into the future. So this is like really just like the starting off point. But oh, why is it so hard to write good sex scenes, Danny? <laughs> I don't know. I write good sex scenes. My good, my sex scenes are good. No, in this the is book, why I'm I asking love them. you. Teach us. Yes, yes, Teach yes, us yes. your ways. Teach... <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, my child. I will tell you all about it. I'll tell you all about sex. Um... <laughs> oh, no, I didn't ask you to teach me how to have sex. I, I was asking you to teach me how to write sex. <laughs> so I'm not, we're not having the bees and the... No, we're no, not having no that conversation. No birds and the bees. Today. No birds and bees. You have to, you know, get a condoms and teach me how to put them on a banana. I got that uh, <laughs> Okay, all right. I'm glad that we have we have that face. There's, the, there's the foundation we're starting from. <laughs> all right. So the secret of writing good sex scenes is reading good sex scenes. Um, so find authors that are known for writing good sex scenes and read those and try to um, try to dissect what makes them good sex scenes. Um, and I will be honest with you, um, three, four years ago, I hated writing sex scenes because they felt acrobatic. They felt performative and acrobatic. And then he lifted his, his legs and put it on the side table. I'm like, why are you doing? Just like, <laughs> what, what is happening here? Um, yeah, so I, I, I just find, found it very acrobatic and, and performative and theatrical in a way. None of it felt intimate. And I think that's why, like, other than the prudishness, I think that's why we're scared of writing sex scenes, because we want it to be sexy, but also we don't want it to be porn sexy. And, and porn is very acrobatic, and, and <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, so so the first the first step is to read good sex scenes. If I'm going to recommend one name, it will be uh, Glenn Greenwood. Uh, specifically, um, he has um, a book called Cleanness, uh, which is fantastic. And it has a lot of sex scenes and they're all well written. The other thing is I did not read the uh, essay that you're talking about in Body Works, but I agree with the idea of writing sex scenes just like any other scene. And just like any other scene, they have to have an impact on the overall narrative or else they do not need to exist. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing a sex scene just for the fuck of it, then then don't do it. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a 12 year old sometimes. But if, <laughs> if, genuinely speaking, if the sex scene does not impact the, the, the narrative, does not enhance the narrative in any way, then why are you writing? Just remove the sex scene. It doesn't exist there. Uh, the third thing that I will say about this is that think about the three levels of impact. So there's what's happening on the page. You're describing the sex scene. 
there is your character's inner thoughts uh, as they are they are going through the sex scenes, and then there's the things that your characters would never tell each other as they're going through the sex scenes. So writing a sex scene between somebody who has, like for example, the sex scene in the in the uh, in my book, the the, um, the sex scene where um, Hossam goes and hangs out with this uh, really hot guy. So his internal dialogue is that he is into the guy from with to form a loving dating perspective the guy is clearly into him just to fuck him and send him home right the guy's thinking a hookup hassan is thinking dating and love right and that is how the two characters are navigating hassan is all about like hey how about we hang out and talk and drink coffee and the other guy is like how about you take my dick in your mouth it's 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 just two different directions right um hassan my character is um is extremely people pleasing. So he was going through the sex scene where all of his external, um, like his voice, his body language is all about welcoming the other person's uh, advances, right? And from the outside, it looks like two men having a great time. But all of his internal dialogue, which I put on the page, is of him saying, I'm going to lie and say I like this. Uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable right now, but I want to please this man, so I'm going to do this. Um, I don't know if I'm clean and ready for this, but I will do it anyway because otherwise he would um, he would hate me and he won't like me. So all of those are presented on the page. And at the end of the day, which really impacted all of the sex scene is what Hossam can never tell you. What Hossam can never tell you is He's in need of loving himself. He doesn't have any value internally towards himself. And that's why he's putting his body, the only body he has, through such a traumatic experience. Because he doesn't have that, that self-worth, he's putting his body through that traumatic experience. And by understanding that as the author, I'm now writing a meaningful sex scene that represents Hossam's lack of self-worth while also writing a dynamic sex scene that shows the two characters and where they're coming uh, from as they are basically crashing into each other on the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like you said, you can tell so much about a good sex scene about how it moves the story forward and how it mm -hmm. builds the characters. And that's exactly what that scene did. Uh, you know, it was necessary to be there because it taught us about Hassan and it taught taught us more about who he was, but it also moved him forward in the story, which was essential. And you can always tell, I mean, I think you and I have exchanged some notes on some of our least favorite sex mm. scenes. Um, mm. And like, Oftentimes it does. It just feels like unnecessary. Like it's there just for this, just for the sake of it. Like just to say, I can write this really gross. And oftentimes, like I mean, maybe it's the feminist in me that finds sometimes that men can write sex scenes where it's like just showing like the fuck boy. I, you know, like it. No, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, look what I can do. And it's like, okay, yeah. gross, flip the page. And, you know, exactly. like, and maybe the other thing is, I'm going to, I'm going to put this out there for the world. But I think like queer, I've read so many great sex scenes written by queer authors. Like, and I think mm -hmm. it's that whole 
um, the like flaws of heteronormative sex where mm-hmm. there is always and I, I mean of course it exists in queer relationships too because queer relationships are, are informed by heteronormative relationships and they're having to like fight against that but I think oftentimes when we're reading straight sex there's weird power dynamics and so like Mm -hmm. in like i loved the sex scenes in butter honey pig bread like oh yeah oh man i needed a cold shower (laughs) (laughs) for the food the food and the the sex oh you slayed in that book but you know like i do think that's the thing too like uh it's it's hard often to read sex scenes that feel just like gratuitous and exploitative and and if that's the point if it if it is meant to serve the story in a certain way then sure but if it is just there for the sake of those things then i don't understand it yeah yeah and i find that a lot of times when when immature writers um write sex scenes they're reflecting a lot of their own insecurities about sex mm-hmm. like or they're judging themselves up like i i sent you i remember i sent you a screenshot from a sex scene <laughs> of this guy who's like and then i made her come a third time and she begged me to stay in bed i'm like are we sure have you ever have you ever made a woman like what i'm not i'm not sure that you actually understand how that that mm-hmm. I, i've never slept with a woman personally i'm a gold star gay but like I I am pretty sure that this is not a dynamic that you have experienced before. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fully right. no. <laughs> right? And it's just it's just so weird because like it feels like why am I reading your insecurity here? This is this is not this is not about the character. This is about you as the author. And a big part I think of of why queer authors are capable of writing genuinely speaking, writing better sex scenes is because we think about it outside of the animalistic desire to just, like, do sex, right? Yeah. We actually think about it has it has a meaning, it has sanctuary to it for queer folks, it has an impact based on how we feel about our own bodies, about the bodies of others. Um, it's, it has an impact because specifically with, we, we are impacted by by the gaze of the the mainstream society, by the the look that the mainstream society sees us in our bodies. And then you add race and racism to it, and suddenly you're navigating not just homophobia and not just like alienation because of your sexuality or your gender identity. It's also an alienation because of your racial identity. And suddenly our bodies become foreign to us and we have to spend a lot of time as queer authors actually understanding our bodies before we can actually participate in our community sexually or before we can end or before we can write authentic sex yeah what did you learn about yourself as a writer while working on foghorn echoes hmm um, so I worked on the Foghorn Echoes around the same time that I was finishing my master's degree. And the thing that I learned about myself as an author is that I love sharing the wealth. I love sitting down with other authors being like, listen, so how you do dialogue 
is you do A, B, and C and look at how awesome it will come. And then somebody else would be like, oh, so I tried this trick and it worked really well for me. That kind of craft conversation just means so much to me right now. It's um, it's communal, it's artistic, it's meaningful that way. It is. It makes me feel good about about my writing is that I can understand my writing, not just from like a pure, oh, I'm talented, I'm God sent to writing, <laughs> uh, but also from, which I am, I am talented, I am God sent to <laughs> But also from like a way where I can distill it into information that I can pass it on to other writers. And, and that feels collaborative. It feels like my art has evolved from being like this solitary experience into this collaborative communal situation where I'm talking to other authors and we're coming out with solutions for our joint problems. Yeah. And you are so generous with what, I mean, that's something I've, I've been lucky to get to know about you as you are very generous in what you've learned and, uh, and in supporting other writers in advancing no. their careers. Thank you. It's it's genuine because it's fun. It's honestly like I'm not I I do not intend to be generous. I genuinely just love those conversations. Yeah. They are a lot of fucking fun. I just love them. Yeah. yeah. And it's like the full one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I get to nerd out on books and like have craft conversations <laughs> with people I have so much love and admiration for. So I totally yeah. get it. And yeah. talking about the Backstreet Boys too, like it's it just uh, I know it's a full I mean, circle. I tell you, <laughs> it's true. Sex scenes, Backstreet Boys, finding out that you uh, know we both have a shared love of AJ. This is like all that matters uh, to me in my day. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We have we have accomplished Nirvana today. That was Danny Ramadan. Danny is the author of The Foghorn Echoes, which is a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website via our show notes. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Sharita Warner. Sharita is the author of Test Piece. Test Piece is a finalist for the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.